Hello, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. On this show, first we tell you about the setting and history of a hiking trail, and then we tell you how to hike the trail. On this episode, my longtime hiking buddy Tony Wong is back on the show to talk with me about a unique trail in the Mojave Desert of Southern California. It's in an otherworldly setting that has tall, almost human-looking yucca plants and piles of massive granite boulders that look like they were placed there by giants. It's a land of long desert vistas, wildflowers, and sandy washes. At one point, it even has a view on the horizon of the Salton Sea, California's biggest lake. On this hike, we go to the high desert, where it can be freezing in winter and have searing heat in summer. One thing is for sure, this is not your typical backpacking trip. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the California Riding and Hiking Trail in Joshua Tree National Park. Tony Wong, welcome back to the show. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So you look like a new man. There's a, there's a glow about you. Um, did something momentous happen in your life since you were last on the show? Uh, you're probably referring to the fact that I've lost my freedom and I've recently gotten married. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say the freedom part. You did. Yes, I did say that. She's going to probably kill me. <laughs> okay, well, congratulations. Thank you. All right, so we're going to talk today about Joshua Tree. You remember that trip? Oh, definitely. Okay, so there's two stories I want to start with. One is the story of the Joshua Trees themselves. So Captain John C. Fremont of the U.S. Army Corps of Topographical Engineers from the um, Fremont Expedition came to California looking for a river flowing west to the Pacific from the Rockies, and they had named this the Rio Buenaventura. And ultimately what they what they able, were able to prove in their expedition was that no such river actually existed. <laughs> but he did find Joshua trees. So here is what Fremont had to say about Joshua trees. He said, Crossing a low sierra and descending a hollow where a spring gushed out, we were struck by the sudden appearance of yucca trees, which gave a strange and southern character to the country, and suited well with the dry and desert region we were approaching. Associated with the idea of barren sands, their stiff and ungraceful form makes them to the traveler the most repulsive tree in the vegetable kingdom. Repulsive? So, Tony, what did you think of the Joshua trees? <laughs> I didn't think it was repulsive. Um, I think there was a nice spot of green. It was very tall, or at least they could have been, and Surprisingly yeah. tall, right? Yeah, yeah. actually. Yeah, the yeah. Joshua trees, can, they can get up to be, I think, something like 50 feet tall or something like that. They can be uh, much taller than most yucca plants that people have seen. I think it's very striking just because think of a desert. It's fairly, you think, oh, it's barren, but there's this tall thing that's green. <laughs> <laughs> that is as basic a way as you could put it. But yeah, it's accurate. For For me, they're kind of... The Joshua trees are kind of an alien sort of looking thing, but they're kind of beautiful in their own way. And I think the fact that they have this sort of 
you know, as I, as I said in the intro, a kind of human-like form to them really does make them interesting. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of standing upright, kind of the arms, uh, you know, kind of like goal. Exactly, goal. <laughs> and that, I'll, I'll, let me explain the history of them a little bit. And that's, that's where the name does come from, is that look. The Joshua trees grow in the Mojave Desert from between 1,300 to 5,900 feet. And that's 400 to 1,800 meters. They mostly grow between 3,000 and 5,000 feet. So in an actually a little bit more tighter, smaller, or more narrow zone. The ones that are in the park are primarily in the Lost Horse Valley there in Joshua Tree National Park. In Spanish, them they've been called Isote de Desierto, which means desert dagger, which maybe comes from the sharp leaves they have. And the scientific name is Yucca brevifolia. So you you were talking about how it's almost like they're they're holding up their arms like they're saying goal. And it's yeah. funny that you you mentioned that because the name comes from a story about Joshua in the Bible. And it's where Joshua's hands were reached out to guide the Israelites in conqu- conquest of Canaan. And the theory is that the Mormons um, gave the name Joshua Tree to the Joshua Trees because of their familiarity with that story from the Bible. Uh, but maybe if we had had popular soccer back then, or, you know, even NFL football, they would have thought of this more like, uh, they could have been the touchdown tree. But instead, they're the Joshua tree. They have um, a few things about them. They have really deep uh, roots to go 11 meters down. So that's, you know, roughly 35 feet down. They live for hundreds of years. Some can actually live for thousands of years. And as I said, they grow up to about 15 meters tall, which is about 50 feet they have these really serrated sort of bayonet leaves like a lot of other yucca. There are antelope ground squirrels that disperse their seeds so that they can grow in other locations. And there are yucca moths that pollinate them. That come, um, They come from cocoons after years underground and, and are able to pollinate the Joshua trees. El Nino years in, in California, where there's a little bit warmer weather and more rain, brings enough water to germinate the seeds. And so they really rely on that weather pattern. There's a, there's a plant called uh, black rush, which is a nurse plant for the first couple of years. So it helps sort of keep them safe from, I don't know if it's animals or other plants that would cause a problem for them, but there's this symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I was say some symbiotic or it's kind of figured out, eh, we're both stuck here. Might as well help each other. Out. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting situation where there's this other uh, black rush plant that, that helps the Joshua trees to grow. It takes them about 50 to 60 years to reach maturity. Uh, it might not be surprising to hear that climate change is a serious threat to Joshua trees. An article I read that came actually from the uh, a website for a television, television station, KCET, called The Joshua Tree, Myth, Mutualism, and Survival, was really um, helpful to me in understanding more about them. And then I recommend that to folks who want to learn a little bit more. And what's another interesting fact about the Joshua trees is that in the Ice Age, the Mojave was a pine forested woodland with lakes, but it also had Joshua trees even then. And there were bears and wolves and saber-toothed cats and camels and horses and giant ground sloths, all these things that are, for the most part, extinct. I mean, all but black bears. So the bears that lived then were much bigger. All of those animals are um, extinct now, but um, they were around with Joshua trees. And at the time, Joshua trees extended far south in, into Mexico and, and near the Colorado River and at much lower elevations. But climate change has significantly limited their range. Another thing that's really interesting about Joshua tree is the rocks. 
the rock formations and are just really striking. And there's metamorphic rock that's been there for more than a billion and a half years, but that's not mostly what I'm talking about. What I'm mostly talking about is the the granite, which uh, Joshua Tree is a paradise for bouldering. And there's what's called quartz monzonite, which is a really rough type of granite. That you, it's really easy to climb in some ways because it's very rough and you can grab onto it fairly easily. Also very scratchy and rough and can destroy your, your skin or your clothes very quickly. I was surprised to see the granite there, actually. It's just something I normally associate with the Sierras. And, and this was my first trip into the desert, actually. So I, it's not something I expected to see. Yeah. And so as uh, we talked about on the High Sierra Trail episode, granite is an igneous rock that comes from volcanic activity underground and then later comes to the surface. And so this the granite there is about 10 million years old. Uh, the San Andreas Fault, which is California's most famous earthquake fault, and the, the fault that someday may make California an island, as people like to say, uh, runs very close to, to the park. It's just outside the park. So with respect to these, these rocks, two areas worth checking out in the park are the Wonderland of Rocks area, which is a really kind of otherworldly sort of Martian landscape. And we, we camped there the night before. We camped in the Indian Cove, I think it's called, campground. Yeah, wasn't uh, there some episodes of maybe Star Trek that were shot out that way? Or Hollywood, didn't they do some movie shoots just for that alien landscape? It's it's highly possible. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I know that there was a lot of shooting done in the Alabama Hills, which is in east of Mount Whitney in the Lone Pine area, and it has a similar look to it in some ways. And I know that there there was a lot of there were a lot of uh, movies shot in that area. So I'm not sure if they were shot in Joshua Tree, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were. Um, another area within the park to check out is an area called Jumbo Rocks. So Wonderland of Rocks and Jumbo Rocks, two areas. Um, that are worth seeing just to see these really neat granite um, rock formations. And so let me change directions now and talk a little bit about the history of the park itself. When I think of Joshua Tree history, I imagine gold prospectors and cattle ranchers and sort of rough and tumble folks. And then in the more modern area, I think of uh, eccentric sort of new age people who think that the desert is maybe some sort of I don't Desert know. Hippies? Yeah, maybe <laughs> they think it's some sort of pulse of energy or something. I don't know, but there's there seems to be a new age attraction to to the desert for some reason. And I also think of the rock climbers in that community and the people that spend a lot of time out there bouldering. But none of those groups are the people that protected what is now Joshua Tree National Park. Instead, it was actually a widow from Pasadena, California. <laughs> a widow? <laughs> yeah. So let me tell you the story of Minerva Hamilton Hoyt. She was originally from Mississippi, and she moved west with her husband. And she lived in South Pasadena and was a very active person civically. She was the president of the L.A. Symphony Orchestra. She was involved with the Boys and Girls Club of L.A. And she was a founding member of the Valley Hunt Club. Do you know what that is? No. That is actually, I don't know what they actually did, but they were the organization um, that started the Tournament of Roses, which is where the Rose Parade came from. That's every oh, every New Year's Day okay, football. Right. Yeah, it goes along with the the Rose Bowl. But they've had this parade where all the floats are made out of plant material, a lot of them out of flowers, primarily roses. Uh, and apparently, she was a founding member also of the club that started that tradition. So, very civically active person in in Pasadena in her community. But she also loved camping in the desert. Unfortunately, she lost her infant son. And then later, her husband in 1918, when she was 52, died. 
So she spent a lot of time in the desert and, and enjoyed that. There was an area that used to be called Devil's Garden that was in the Joshua Tree area, and it had a lot of choya, cactus, and Joshua trees. And it was just kind of a beautiful, you know, southwestern-looking cactus kind of garden. Uh, and it was completely desecrated by people who wanted to bring these plants back to put them in gardens in Los Angeles. And it completely destroyed this area. And it, today it's completely barren. Literally, they just took pieces of stuff and just hacked it off and said, I'm taking you home with me. Yeah, I think they were probably just digging them up. And because and people wanted to have these sort of desert looking gardens in Southern California. So they were digging up all these all these plants. And she was motivated by that. She really saw the destruction that that caused and, and it motivated her to want to protect this area. In 1928, California hired Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., who was actually the son of Frederick Law Olmsted, who created Central Park in New York, who was the designer of that. They hired him to identify places for state parks. And Minerva Hoyt was tapped as a desert expert to identify desert locations that could be a state park. And so she picked one million acres, a lot more land than the current park. And she decided that that should be a, a park. And she actually wanted it not just to be a state park, but also to be a national park. And in 1929 and 1930, she actually created uh, exhibitions that were shown in New York, Boston, and London, where she brought desert plants, flowers, and, and rocks to help win allies to really show them the beauty of the desert and what was there to protect. And it was a pretty successful campaign to get people interested in her cause. And she then founded the International Desert Conservation League in 1930. In 1934, the superintendent of Yellowstone was sent to meet with her. But he wasn't impressed, and he picked 134,000 acres for a small park, which was much less than she had hoped for. And she was furious. She telegrammed the head of the National Park Service when he was visiting, and she contacted others. And then ultimately, she sent two photo albums of the area to President FDR, to Franklin Roosevelt. This is what really got it done. In 1936, FDR made the Joshua Tree area a national monument. And it was 825,340 acres, much larger than was previously recommended. So it became a protected area, though fights with landholders went on long after her death in 1945 at age 79. And it wasn't made a national park from a national monument until 1994. In 2012, the park named a mountain after her in the park. So there's a Mount Minerva Hoyt in, in Joshua Tree nice. National Park. We went to, I think, on the way in to the visitor center in 29 Palms, and there's actually a mural painting of her there. Go, kind of going back there a little bit. So uh, with that land that she wanted to propose, like, hey, I want to have all of this. What was that land primarily you know, used for? I and mean, obviously, I think the, a lot of people go, oh, desert is just sand, rock, dirt. What's, you know, what is it? I don't know the answer to that. But from some of the history I have read, there was a lot of gold mining and prospecting. Uh, gold and silver mining, there was ranching, but it is desert, so it didn't support you know huge populations, not a lot of water, obviously. So I don't know if there was something beyond ranching and, and mining that was going on out there at the time, um, but those are two of the activities that certainly were happening there. So I want to switch now, I'll switch to the, the history of the trail itself. So we've uh, introduced this episode as being about the California Riding and Hiking Trail, and uh, you might wonder, what is the California Riding and Hiking Trail? And so in, this is something that in 1944 was established by legislation 
Uh, but getting it built was another matter. The, the original purpose was to initiate a statewide trail system in California. And it was conceived as a 3,000-mile trail that would go from bottom to top through the mountains and then top to bottom along the coast. It was going to be a big loop. Wow. Yeah, well, that would have been cool. That right? would have been very cool. There were disputes with private landowners, as you might imagine, and so portions of it ended up getting closed off to the, the people who wanted to build uh, trails. In 1945, there was some initial funding. By 1955, there were some overnight camps along a route, and there were some secondary trails that accessed communities that were along the route. And by, early, by the early 1960s, there were over 1,000 miles of trail. But that's kind of where it ended. And in 1966, the big loop idea was abandoned and smaller local loops were planned. And in 1974, they again changed the focus and made, basically made it smaller recreational trails that were more local in nature. And so the trail was never finished and it was essentially abandoned in the 1970s. But one of the things that was left was this segment of the trail that goes through Joshua Tree National Park. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Tony, the, the question I like to ask my guests about each trail why why hike this trail? What's the reason to do it? Well, I don't think it was necessarily very hard in terms of elevation. I, I think that's really one thing that made it very accessible. For myself, just I'd never been to the desert before, and it really was eye-opening, truly eye-opening to kind of see uh, the varied terrain. It was more, more much more greener and had more life than I expected. Some pretty spectacular spaces, actually. Yeah, so you hit you hit on a couple of the reasons that I was thinking about. One is the unique environment, as you just described. The desert is, especially if you're someone who's hiked mostly in the mountains, it's a really neat environment to to travel through as, on a backpacking trip. Uh, the other thing you mentioned was the ease of the hike, and I think that's right too. And especially when you do the hike the way we did, from west to east, it's mostly downhill. There's some uphill on that first day, and a little bit on the second day if you do this the, the, where we depending on where you stop. Right. But it's not a huge amount. No. I, I, I even I think the uphill part portions felt relatively gradual over a distance of time uh, versus going straight up. And, but it is over from west to east. It is actually mostly downhill, yeah. which is um, makes it a nice, um, reasonably doable hike. Uh, another thing is, you know, like a lot of hikes that we may talk about on the show, it, it's a long weekend hike. So it, it, this is one that's doable without taking a week off from work. You can at a Friday or a Monday or both and, and get this hike in. Distance-wise, it's not crazy. Is it like 37 and a half or something Yeah, like it's that? about 37 and a half miles, exactly. And so for time of year for this hike, I would recommend spring or fall. Um, as I mentioned, Joshua Tree can be freezing in the winter and scorching in the summer. And so uh, spring or fall are the best options. We hiked this in March 2018. Uh, and so that's right in that window, although... We had some pretty cold weather. Surprisingly. I, I think that was uh, most of the trip. Uh, I re- was wearing my wind shirt and a good portion. I had my, my little fleece gloves on. That was, that was an eye opener. If I didn't have that wind shirt, it would have been miserable. So, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's because it's not enclosed or doesn't have huge mountains blocking um, the trails or sort of protecting the trails or, or forest protecting the trails, if there's wind, you're going to, you're going to feel it. And it wasn't a strong wind. I would say it was a, it was a constant breeze and it's just enough that it, it would chill you if you didn't have a little protection. Yeah. We had temperatures that were in the fifties and sixties, mostly I yeah. think uh, Fahrenheit. 
All right. So one thing, let's talk a little bit about specialized gear or or things you need to consider for this trip. The, the, the number one thing that comes to mind, which we'll talk about in a little bit of detail in a minute, is you have to bring all your own water. Yes. Dry camping. Yeah. There's no much. You're in the desert. There's no water. <laughs> yeah. Caching water was uh, a big part. Definitely a big part of this drug. Okay. Necessity. So, so you don't need to worry about filtration. Nope. Okay. And as we said, I would prepare for wide temperature swings in those shoulder seasons and those spring and fall seasons because it could be very hot in the day and it could be very cold at night. could be cold and windy even in the day as we experienced. And also, I would prepare for lots of exposure. As I said, there's not a lot of cover. Yes. Yeah, very open, exposed. And one other thing I would say that we didn't experience, but I have, I've only been to Joshua Tree. Well, I've been to Joshua Tree, I think, now four times. And I've got rained on twice out of those four times. You're just lucky. I, I've just not experienced much rain on any of the trips I've taken, really. Yeah. So it's, it may sound strange to get rained on in the desert, but it's it's happened to me half the times I've been to Joshua Tree. I know it's not a large sample size, but uh, anyway, so definitely bring rain gear, even though you're in the desert, especially if you're hiking in those shoulder seasons where the weather could be a little iffy. For uh, navigation, Tom Harrison maps. Uh, Tom Harrison has a great map for Joshua Tree, and we use that. Yeah, love Tom Harrison. They make it really easy. Um, I used an app also called View Ranger, and I just I think I picked it because they had an. Uh, it's an app that is one of these apps that works with your GPS on your phone, and it uh, had somebody had loaded a, this route onto that app, so it made it really easy for me to download that route onto my phone and have that as a backup to the Tom Harrison map. And also, there's a park map when you show up at the at the park and you pay your fee and. Even those little pamphlet park maps are actually fairly useful yeah. on a hike like this. And there's also a lot of the uh, trail markers, quite frequent. Yes, you, you hit on something that I think blew our minds almost. And then we've <laughs> yes. never seen this on any other hike. But there is a marker every single mile of this trail that tells you what mile it is. And sometimes they're real close to each other within just a couple hundred yards. Uh, at some point, yeah, we did see some trail post wait what do you mean they're within a couple hundred yards of each other we saw one that was like on the trail here and there was one just uh, not too far ahead it wasn't every mile oh really i think there were well okay what i'm referring to is i think there was the, the wooden ones there were the old ones and they put some newer ones oh uh, yeah so yeah. that's yeah they, they may have been upgrading the system to better right. signs yeah but what i was referring to is every mile so one through 37 there's a marker that says mile one, mile two, mile three, and it goes like that throughout, which is really convenient because you know exactly where you are on the trail. Yeah. And also, you know, you haven't gotten off the trail onto some other trail because you've seen if you don't see the marker after a mile, you, you might have gone the wrong way. Which is really helpful. Just I think we noticed on the, some of the trails, uh, like following a wash, right? There are other trails that seem to crisscross, yeah. whether a game trail or otherwise. So having that marker is real helpful. So let's talk about getting there. Joshua Tree is very convenient from a few places. It's convenient from Los Angeles. It's about two hours. It's convenient from Las Vegas. It's about three hours from Vegas. And it's about two and a half hours from San Diego. It's not terribly convenient for us coming from the Bay Area, but we did that anyway. And we drove a long way in one day. I don't even know how many hours it was, but it was probably eight to ten. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a long day. Uh, we went by fast. We didn't, you know want to kill each other or anything like that no no we did okay yeah but it is quite a long drive from the bay area if you're coming from the bay area you can either plan for a marathon drive or you could fly into la uh, or palm springs even potentially 
the area where the park is has two towns. They're Yucca Valley and 29 Palms. And those towns have groceries, gas, restaurants. There's also a fairly good-sized military base there in 29 Palms. So there's all the sort of um, resources you might need if you've forgotten anything or need to buy food or just want to get a meal at a restaurant. That's all there. So I mentioned that we stayed at a campground the night before our hike, and that's Indian Cove Campground. And that's in the Wonderland of Rocks area. I, I've been to this campground now three times, and I've, I really enjoy it because of the, it's a really amazing landscape with these huge rock piles and formations. And I went there with my kids a few years ago, and we spent a lot of time climbing on the rocks near our campsite. And so uh, I don't know what you thought of Indian Cove, but I thought it was just, I think it's just a really special place. I thought it was really nice. Uh, being able to walk around, you know, we got there, I don't know, maybe in the afternoon, uh, checking out the other campsites, just seeing what other people's setups were. Uh, also, just the rock formations. I actually was surprised how tall some of them really were. Yeah. Oh. So, so so I mentioned the rock formations because of these, you know, multi-million year old beautiful formations. And Tony wants to check out everyone's gear. <laughs> I kind of have a fetish for that thing. All right. So that's that's a nice place to stay the night before if you reserve a site there. If you're coming from L.A., you can hike same day. You know, it's not as far. There's also there's a trail there called Boy Scout Trail that's right near the Wonderland of Rocks. I actually did a solo backpacking trip years ago on that trail. I just hiked about halfway up of it and found a place to camp. Um, and so there, that's an option for a day hike. If you're staying in Indian Cove, you could go hike on that uh, Boy Scout Trail up a ways and just get a, a more of a sense of that area. For permits for this hike, you can fill them out free at the trailhead or at a ranger station. One trick on that is there's part of it that's supposed to be torn off and stay in your car. And we forgot that, didn't we? Yes, we did. We were a little concerned, but I think we found a ranger and and he said, as long as, you know, they have have us on the list, we were fine. Yeah, it was no big deal, apparently. But that is something you're supposed to do. You're supposed to leave the part of the permit in your car. So as Tony mentioned, it's about 37 and a half miles. They list it as 37.3, actually, which is, oh, I didn't uh, translate this to kilometers, but I'm guessing that's probably 55 to 60, probably 55-ish kilometers. If 30 miles is 50, uh, maybe more. So maybe it's more like 60 kilometers. This hike can take, it took us three days. It could be three to four days, depending on the pace you want to do. I think we could have actually done it easier in three days and we can talk about that. So I think three days is still a good pace, even if you don't want to hike as hard as we did the second day, which we'll talk about. But three to four days is probably the window you're looking at. You could do it in two if you really wanted to push. And as we said, it's more downhill from west to east. Uh, And as we also mentioned, it's sort of, it's in the Mojave section of Joshua Tree National Park, where the Joshua trees are, and that's a high elevation desert. It's as we mentioned, it's between three to five thousand feet generally. And so there's another part of Joshua Tree National Park that's more in the Sonoran Desert portion, much lower, closer to Palm Springs, and it's a very different environment. We didn't go to that part of the park. So for folks who are going to do this trip, I think we really do need to explain the water cache situation. So first, Tony, I think it might be helpful if people have never done a water cache. We've done this on a few trips. Can you explain sort of what we do? You know, we put labels on them and how we hide them or put them in places. Yeah, it's not all that difficult. We ended up getting usually jugs of water from the grocery store, usually a gallon. Yeah. Uh, we'll print out a label that'll say our names on there and the dates of our trip and to say, hey, don't take this. This could endanger our lives. But I think it's very important to put the dates. The leftover water, we would write on there, hey, you can go ahead and use this. 
but absolutely for this trip, it's critical. Yeah. And I think it is important to put on the label. So but people who aren't overnight backpackers may not understand what the water is doing there. Uh, and so if you put on the label that people are relying on this for their safety, um, hopefully nobody will take it. Another thing, another way to ensure that is to put the water somewhat out of sight. And we, we would do that and take a photo of the spot with our phone from sort of our approach angle so that we'd be able to find it when we got there. Right. So it's just a little bit of hiding, maybe just being a little cautious to set it off to the side of the trail, a little hidden and just sheltered from the elements. Yeah, but don't hide it so well that you can't find it. Right. Take a picture. <laughs> yeah. And how much water? I mean, we, we were thinking like a gallon per day per person, but we had cooler temperatures and didn't use that much. Yeah. We had quite a lot of water extra uh, at each stop very easily. I think we may have only used half in some instances or two thirds. Uh, but I would say it's better to have too much than too little. You and I kind of err on the side of being cautious. I think that's a smart move. That's true. And if you encounter much higher temperatures, you may need all that water. So going from west to east, the places where we put water caches were first Upper Covington Flat, which is a long dirt road that is about seven miles of dirt road we had to drive on. Starts at Contenta Road in Yucca Valley. It ends up at about mile eight of the hike where the water is. We put our second drop at Keys View Road, and you can drive out there. It's a paved road. It's near Ryan Campground in the park. You could also use Ryan Campground as a water drop, which is at mile 18.5 roughly. And so we we went right by Ryan Campground. We could have left the water there as well. Either one of those would work. Uh, one we didn't use, but I think would be a really good option, is Geology Tour Road, which is a dirt road that's about 1.5 miles uh, driving off the main park road, and it's at mile 26 of the hike. Uh, I like that as an option because... It could be close to a place where you might camp for the night. There are some pretty good um, boulder formations, rock areas beyond that uh, dirt road that would make good places to camp. And so that could be an option as well. But we didn't use that. We used we put our last drop at Pinto Basin Road that's at mile 30 at the Twin Tanks Trailhead. Those are some pretty good choices you could make for dropping water at you know any of those or all of those, depending on how you want to do it. In terms of being accessible, we drove out in a Honda Fit, also known as the Jazz in Europe. So it wasn't a demanding trail. It's just a little compact car, not four-wheel drive. Pretty easy. You mean yeah. on, on driving the dirt road? Driving the dirt road. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. Hard. Yeah, you don't need a four-wheel drive. No. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. We were driving, as Tony said, his Honda Fit, and we were able to get out on uh, Covington Flat Road all the way out to where we needed to drop the water without a problem. Yeah, it's so, not a technical road. Exactly. Okay. The other thing we had to do is we had one car. The two of us came together in, in, in a car and we were hiking west to east. So we had to leave the car at the north entrance at the east end of the trail. Take What we ended up doing was taking an Uber back to Black Rock Canyon entrance. If you had a second car, you could leave one at e either entrance. Um, but from our perspective, we, we dropped our car, took an Uber. We actually called the Uber, I think, from down the hill from the entrance closer to the ranger station because of reception reception. We had to make sure we had that. Yeah. So we called for re when we had reception, then drove up the hill and waited for the Uber to come up and, um, had a really good conversation with our Uber driver. Really nice guy. I think he had been sitting. Yeah. He was a local who had been sitting at home, you know, on his couch watching TV when, <laughs> when we he got the call, when he got the call and he, uh, got himself dressed and got out there to pick us up and yeah, we had a good so conversation. Real character. Yeah. I think that was my first Uber drive. Uber. 
Yeah, there you go. Tony was... I live under a rock. Yeah, he lives under a rock. Um, <laughs> okay. The second entrance where we ended up is at Black Rock Canyon, and you go up Palomar Avenue in Yucca Canyon to get to that. And Black Rock Canyon, is a there's a campground there and a ranger station, and um, that's where the trail started on the west side. A little bit on logistics, you can camp anywhere out here in the desert. I mean, because you're not worried about water sources, I mean, I guess there is somewhere. You have to get to your cache that you need. Yes. And then you take that with you to wherever you want to camp. Um, so it probably is easiest to camp fairly close to a water cache. But you do want to pick up your water and hike away from the road. You know, you're not going to camp right on the road. Right. You want to be some distance away. Just, you know, also you want to have your own privacy. And there's no open fires on this, but you can use your camp stove. Yeah. That can be a challenge in the wind, as yeah, I found yeah. out. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was using Esbit. Oh, yes. Tablets. Tony was using solid fuel tablets and not a canister, canister stove. Yeah, not a canister stove. And so that was a little bit of work with uh, the wind we experienced. Let's go through the itinerary for this hike. So day one, you start, as we said, at Black Rock Canyon. And we'll go through our itinerary and we can you know, say whatever we have that might be useful about what alternate itineraries might be. But what we did is we hiked about 10 miles the first day. We worked our way uh, ultimately up a wash, got to our first water cache at Covington, which is at mile eight. And then we found this empty valley about two miles past Covington. It was a really, I thought, a nice place to set up camp. Yeah, it, well, it was nice, very scenic, very, very windy. Yeah, okay. And then Tony almost killed himself. Uh, acts of stupidity. I'm really yeah. good at that. Yeah. So tell everybody what happened. <laughs> um, I was standing on one of the rocks trying to, I guess, put my food bag into a dead tree just to hang it on a branch. And I, st- I st- stepped back on the rock and there was a dead branch or limb. And I just flew backwards. I, I landed fell on my back. Did the limb just, the, the tree branches broke? It was just, yeah, it was just laying there. So it was like oh. a log. Basically. Oh, you stepped on so it. So I stepped on it. It was okay. laying It wasn't there. attached to the tree. No. And, okay. and I just, it was like a log. I rolled back. I kind of yelled out. Maybe you heard. I don't know. I landed on a bush or brush, some scrubby brush, and there were rocks all around me. And, I, you know, I lucky I tucked my head forward and I didn't smash my brains out. So. <laughs> I was a little stunned for sure. Yeah. I had this moment of panic. Like, what am I going to do if Tony just knocked himself unconscious? Like I had no idea. I was just this moment of pure panic, just but then take my bivy bag and call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> Start piling the gear into my pack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So fortunately, Tony did not lose consciousness nope. and everything worked out. And then the next day, we did a typical Jeremy Tony stupidity thing, and we hiked a really long way. We went 21 miles, I think. Why is that a good idea? Yeah, I mean, it was totally unnecessary. It was definitely longer than we should have hiked. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that day. One of the things we saw early on in this day was the Salton Sea, and there was this really neat viewpoint of that. And I'll give a little bit of background on what that is. I said it's California's biggest lake, but one of the interesting things is it was accidentally created. It It's the biggest lake in California at 1,360 square kilometers. And it is an ancient lake bed. So in historically, over millions of years, it was a lake. But at the time, the time Europeans came to California, it was not a lake. It was just a lake bed. Ultimately, it was flooded by the Colorado River um, in the early 20th century. 
the river broke through two uh, man-made dikes that had been there to keep the water out. Uh, there was heavy rain and it broke through the dikes and it flooded this whole ancient riverbed and or this ancient lake bed and created a new huge lake. And it's been there ever since. It became part of the Pacific Flyway, which is interesting. So it's an important spot along bird migration routes. Uh, and then in the 1950s and 60s, it was actually quite a resort uh, for Southern Californians to go on vacation to. But ultimately, as the water started to evaporate from the sun, it got too salty. And there was a lot of pollution that came in from industry as well. In addition to evaporation, I think some of the water was used for agriculture. At the end of the day, what happened is it just became too salty to support any life. The fish in it were dying. And it really wasn't good for tourism anymore. And at this point, I don't think people know what to do with it. But it is an interesting story. I think it's just kind of an abandoned location you can still go out to. I think I've seen some YouTube videos. It's like a ghost town. Yeah. I drove by it once, but it was probably 20 years ago. And I don't remember any really anything seriously developed around it. And I don't remember even where the nearest town is. But um, so that's that's something you actually have a view of from one point on the hike. And then when you get to mile um, 13, about is where you really start to see Joshua trees themselves. For the first part of the hike, there's a lot of other interesting desert foliage, but not so many Joshua trees. But at mile 13, you really start to see those. And then I mentioned you get to Ryan Campground, and that's a place where you could cash water. And we picked up our water from Keyview Road just before that. After we crossed Keyview Road, something that um, we saw was a side trail to uh, Lost Horse Mine. Did you remember seeing that? Yeah, I remember seeing a metal pipe that had been laid into the ground that was kind of exposed. Maybe I think it was for water for a part of the mine. I, I remember seeing that pipe. Yeah. Let me tell the story of Lost Horse Mine. So as I mentioned, there was has been gold mining in the Joshua Tree area for a while. At one time, there were over 300 mines in what is now Joshua Tree National Park. Most were unproductive, uh, but the Lost Horse Mine was an exception. It actually produced 10,000 ounces of gold and 16,000 ounces of silver between 1894 and 1931. So let me tell the story of Johnny Lang. So Johnny Lang was a cowboy running cattle through the area, and one night his horse disappeared. And he tracked it to a camp of cattle rustlers who then threatened him, who had basically stolen his horse. And Lang met up later with another guy who had been threatened by the same group. Uh, and this other guy said he had a rich gold claim, but was afraid due to these cattle rustlers that had a, a nearby camp. But Lang decided he was going to develop this mine. And he took on three partners so that he had security. There was, you know, safety in numbers, I guess, was the theory. Later, J.D. Ryan bought out those other three partners. So it was Lang and Ryan. And Ryan eventually brought in a, a steam stamp mill that crushed ore. So he had some pretty good technology for the era. Later, Ryan found that Lang was cheating him. And he bought, he basically told Lang, I'm going to buy you out. You don't have a choice or I'm going to report you to the authorities. But for years after, Lang kept coming back because apparently he had hidden gold on the property <laughs> in the area. And he was coming back for his stash to keep <laughs> financing his life, I guess. Unreal. But one year in the winter of 1925, Lang died of exposure along Keysview Road. Nobody's sure exactly what happened. The story is, is it was exposure to the elements. Um, no evidence of foul play, but who knows? And uh, Keys found his body, which seems a little convenient, <laughs> and buried him across from the access road to the mine. So Lang is still still there. So that's Lost Horse Mine. It's a four-mile uh, round trip 
um, side trip you could take out to the mine if you want to see that. And a little ways further on is the geology tour road I mentioned, which could be a good spot for a cache. We retrieved our third cache, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I think it was Pinto Basin Road that's pretty far into the hike, about 30 miles in or a little more even. And then we just found a rocky area to go camp. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was, again, the end of our 20, was it 21 21. mile? Yeah. Uh, My knee was killing me. I was having a hard time during that last section there. Uh, We're going, what, off trail a little bit to go find a spot. It kept just seeing going further and away. I was getting kind of irritated. Yeah, you were at a kind of a low point when we were getting into camp. Yeah. I mean, I, you stopped taking pictures. I, I believe it's interesting. It's maybe just by the trail is pretty sandy. Uh-huh. So maybe with every step that I was taking, your foot's kind of digging in, just stressing my feet. And it was just really painful at the end for me. I was kind of limping, actually. I'm yeah. just waiting for that day to end. And so this is where I would go back and say, again, that after geology to a road, there, was, there were some good um, rock formations that we passed just as we were hiking that would have been good places to camp. So I really think the third cache might be best put there, or you could even put a fourth one at the Pinto Basin Road and go from there or the next day. Not if you need hike to hike 21 miles in one day. Yeah, you don't have to. Yeah. And, and so th- those are some options to think about. And so for day three, we had an easy morning, essentially, with six and a half miles downhill to the car. Yeah, pretty, walk. yeah, and it wasn't, you know, it was basically an easy walk. I guess I would mention one thing that happened the night before is we had a really um, heavy wind come up, and I actually got tent stakes that came out. I hadn't properly secured them with rocks, and in the middle of the night found myself trying to put my uh, get my tent stakes back together in the wind and, of course, got a cactus thorn stuck in me, which made me feel like a, a veteran uh, desert hiker. But um, <laughs> it's also a new t- I think it was also a new tent for you, right? It was my Z-Pax duplex, which I've used a number of times since then and, and really love. But um, at the time, I didn't have a ton of experience with it. And it was terrain that I wasn't used to pitching it in as well. well sandy soil, that's something to think about, too. It's a little bit different to kind of plant your stakes. Rocks are a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And so that was our hike, three days. And as I said, I think it would work for three days for most people. You could stretch it to four if you wanted to take your time. You could compress it to two if you're wanting to push it. Uh, I think three would be really nice. Yeah, if you made it three full and, as I said, stopped a little sooner on day two, it would be a really, really um, pleasant way to do it. Any other thoughts on the hike? Uh. I think the big takeaway for me was I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions of what to expect, but I was surprised each day, almost like maybe in sections of three, the terrain was really varied. It wasn't always the same. The first day going up the wash, there's, you know, scrubby brush, maybe about maybe some of it waist high. I think we saw a lady walking a dog pretty close to the area where we're getting our first cash. Like, where did she come from? Yeah. Uh, Then, again, having that evening out there, kind of a wide, I don't know, valley, if you want to say. Mm -hmm. kind of flat area that was windy. Then, again, I was going to say, when we saw the Salton Sea, we were actually, I believe, up on a ridge ridge area. Yeah. So I wasn't expecting that. They're just like gully or little ravines. I, I wasn't expecting that. Again, on a long second day near the tail end, it was the classic what I would envision a desert. 
very wide, flat, open spaces. The sky seemed to go forever. Yeah. yeah. I think the scenery for this trip really was spectacular because it was different. And each day had was not a repeat of the day before. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's amazing how varied the terrain can be in the desert, how varied the foliage can be. Uh, really is spectacular country and worth checking out if you haven't done it. So, Tony, while I have you, got a few questions for you. Ask away. All right. What is the dumbest thing you've ever done while backpacking? The dumbest thing very easily would be going on a snow camping trip where I wasn't expecting snow, wearing jeans, tennis shoes, a T-shirt, and a sweatshirt, and almost dying of carbon monoxide poisoning due to the fire that uh, we created to keep ourselves warm. Did you have the fire in the tent? No. I was uh, in a cabin. Uh, I was with a friend of my childhood friend of mine. I, I want to say it was maybe 18 or 19 years old at the time. Okay. We were going to, and he was a beagle. Oh, I say beagle scout, probably eagle scout, but not a very good scout. Okay? <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it was, I think it was is that in a th- July. Wait, is that a thing, calling someone a beagle scout? Yeah, we'll call it beagle scout. I was never in the Boy Scouts. So okay. We'll call them beagle scouts. But I think it was, I think it was in July. So down around here in the Bay Area, summer weather. So yeah. he says, oh, you want to go on this backpacking trip? It's near a Boy Scout camp up in the mountains that he'd been to many, many a time before. So we pack, uh, we're driving out there, and there's snow. <laughs> I mean, there's, they plowed the roads. I mean, it wasn't snow, super sunny. It wasn't, you know, falling, but it was pretty. I wasn't ready for snow. We parked the truck. I had my pack on. It took us 30 minutes to get just maybe 100 yards. I was waist deep in snow. I was post-holing it, okay? Yeah. Sinking. And any normal, rational person would say, uh, probably shouldn't do this, right? Yeah. Like, no, we're going to keep going. And we drop down into a valley, and it becomes completely foggy. I mean, it's just you can't see anything. It started to snow. We weren't ready for this. We, we actually broke into a cabin, all right? <laughs> we were dripping, soaking wet. We thought, okay, we found some coffee cans, some wood. We, we made fire, poked some holes in the can. So you had a little, little fire stove, right, kind of going on. Well, we got this brilliant idea. Well, let's just bring the fire into this cabin, right, uh-huh. with us to keep warm and just trap the heat in there. Let's make sure it's really good. Let's put a tarp on the door, slam the door on the tarp and make the sucker airtight. Yeah, that's okay. not very smart. No, not at all. I, <laughs> I had vivid nightmare dreams of a bear chasing me and lightning, but I, I woke up in the middle of the night with just a raging headache. The fire has extinguished. And the first thing I thought, oh my God. I think we just poisoned ourselves, carbon monoxide. I mean, just heads just raging. I kicked the back door of the cabin open. Uh, I'm leaning on the door, actually taking a leak, and it's snowing. All right. (laughs) All of our tracks obliterated. I don't have a compass. I don't even have a map. I'm just following the Beagle Scout. (laughs) All right. Wake up. So survive that stupidity. Yeah. Next morning, we were just like, we got to get out of here, right? Made some top ramen, actually got some plywood, tried to make a sled to pull our packs here. We're dragging these things. 
which is just like a lead weight. I went through two or three streams in tennis shoes while it's snowing. Nice. And Wait, where we was, were lost. Where was this? Uh, it's a place called Wolfboro. I don't know exactly where. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But we were lost, flat out lost. I was dri- dripping in sweat. I weighed like maybe 119 or 18 pounds at the time. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm like 5'6". Yeah, that's just not good. I thought I was going to die. Seriously. I, it was, you could have. I should have died. I mean, just yeah. acts of stupidity right there. But I was so exhausted, dripping in sweat. I just knew if I stopped, I'd freeze. Yeah. But luckily, we found trail markers, like the little red streamer plastic tags on the trees. Uh-huh. And th- that got us out. So you, you know you're telling me this. The day that my son, l- today, left to go on his first backpacking trip with only his friend. So it's two 17-year-olds going for a three-night backpacking trip in the Sierra Nevada by themselves, and you're telling me the story. Yeah, but there's no snow, right? There's no yeah. snow on the ground. Uh, yeah, but they're going to do something stupid, I'm sure of it. Yeah. Okay. What's the most resourceful thing you've done while backpacking? I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself redeem here. Redeem myself? Yeah. I don't know if I can redeem myself. It's just amazing I'm still backpacking after that experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the most resourceful, this on the John Muir Trail, it's my shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had to tape them up every day. We had to, uh, yeah, gorilla tape. Well, I made another poor decision. Yeah. I was going, well, I have these trail runners, you know, about 50% tread. It's good enough, right? You know, why would I want to buy some new shoes for a 220-mile trip? And the sole started delaminating, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, I had Gorilla Tape wrap that thing and was able to walk on it for quite a while. Yeah, I think on the east side of Whitney, coming down, it finally fell out. It like fell the shank off. of the shoe uh, fell yeah. out. and yeah. Anything from the emergency kit, you know, super glue, whatever we had. Yeah, we were, we were putting together. all different kinds of things on it to keep it together. Yeah, I was kind yeah. of kicking myself for being dumb. All right, so what about most memorable? I got two more questions. Most memorable campsite and worst campsite? Most memorable campsite? Uh, Fraser Lakes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. up in the emigrant wilderness where my yes. son is today, where he is yeah. going. And I, I was thinking about why that place. I don't know, a lot of scenic places, but I actually have a photo of that lake, which is a, above immigrant uh, lake. Uh, we had lunch there. It's in my cubicle at work. My now wife at the time, fiance, says, I want you to take me there. Yeah. And we did go there about a year, year and a half ago. Uh It's the only place I've really gone back to. It's just an amazing spot off trail a little bit. Yeah, we found that we were on a trip in the Emigrant Wilderness and we we went cross country to find that lake up above Emigrant Lake and spent, like you said, lunch up there. And so swimming hole, beautiful view looking down at the the larger lake below. Yeah, beautiful spot. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, you found this, but what about worst campsite? Worst campsite. Uh, oh. I, I've got an answer for you. Uh, there's the horse piss camp. Yes, horse piss camp. camp. There's yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, so that is, that is where my son is going to stay tonight, by the way. That's his plan. <laughs> and you <laughs> and told him that's where to go? Yeah, I did. So it's called Sheep Camp, and it's an immigrant wilderness. But what we learned when we got there is that there are two parts to Sheep Camp. There's a part where the people sleep, and there's the part where they leave the stock. And Tony and I didn't realize that these were different parts. And we set up camp in the part where they usually leave stock. 
And in the middle, of the, I don't even know how long it took. It may not have even taken the middle of the night, but pretty quickly we realized it smelled like horse piss. Yes. <laughs> I have one that's worse than that. So there's that one. Okay. It was on my overnight trip to Mount Whitney. Yeah, you've. T- I think we told that story in the last yeah, on the High Sierra Trail podcast when you yeah. we talked about that one. Don't sleep in a drainage ditch. Yeah, that's that another idea. bad one. Um, so I did explain to Justin that you don't want to be on the lower side of the <laughs> creek. You want to be on the higher side of the campsite. Yes. I remember spending the next morning um, really washing my bivy bag out in the creek as much as I possibly could because it just smelled awful. Okay. A big thanks to Tony Wong for coming on the show. And I hope Tony and I have inspired you to try to hike the California Riding and Hiking Trail in Joshua Tree. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Any feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes... Or if you've hiked a great trail and would like to be on the show to talk about it, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. We've got a couple of great episodes coming soon on Trails Worth Hiking. First, let me tell you about our next regularly scheduled monthly episode. In that episode, we're going to be going to northeastern Nevada to an area rich in Old West history where the Pony Express and the Donner Party both pass through. But the trail we travel is no desert adventure. It traverses a craggy, lake-filled, alpine wilderness that rises thousands of feet out of the high desert of northeastern Nevada. On this hike, you might catch a glimpse not only of native bighorn sheep, but also mountain goats and even Himalayan snowcock that were once introduced to the area and thrived there. The hike starts in sagebrush, crosses high mountain passes, and finishes in a massive canyon that some Nevadans say rivals Yosemite Valley. On our next monthly episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Ruby Crest Trail in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. I'm also working on a special bonus episode that I'm hoping to release soon. In episode two, we brought you the High Sierra Trail in California's Sierra Nevada Mountains. That was a grand adventure that goes from west to east across the Sierra Nevada Range. That adventure, though, required an elaborate car shuttle that can add days to the trip. But there's another way to see this part of the Sierra. There's an alternate route worthy of its own episode. And over this past summer, my son and I hiked it. Instead of ending up on the eastern side of the Sierra, you can make the trip into a loop by adding two high mountain passes and two remote and beautiful canyons. In total, this variation on the High Sierra Trail traverses five High Sierra canyons, each of which are amazing in their own way. So I hope you'll check out this special bonus episode coming soon on Trails Worth Hiking, where we'll travel the High Sierra Canyons Loop in Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park. All right, and that's it for this episode. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. (music) 